Hey, everybody, you're listening to Top Quartile, where we bring you stories from the front lines of growth in community-focused financial services. All right, welcome back to Top Quartile. Tim, great to have you on the show again for your quarterly appearance. It's always great to be back. Yeah. And so we got some kind of special news this time. What's, uh, what's, the, what's the catalyst for the show? Yeah, we are uh, super excited to reveal or announce that uh, Infusion has just gone over $10 billion in deposits and loans generated for its clients uh, since our inception 15 years ago. Uh, that's a huge milestone, obviously. Uh, we like to think we've built a nice little regional bank uh, just in terms of the uh, response volumes we've been able to generate for clients through our programs. So really exciting uh, threshold to cross. Yeah, huge threshold, huge milestone. And like you said, I think we're, you know, there's a $10 billion kind of, uh, you know, magic milestone in terms of uh, size of a bank that, that uh, if you add those, all those up, that we're there. So, um, you know, wh- why is that significant for clients? Well, you know, I like, like to start by just saying, um, you know, mission state, there's a mission statements out there. Uh, companies have them. A lot of times, no one in the company could tell you what their mission statement is, uh, or it's so nebulous that it doesn't really mean anything. Uh, our mission statement here at Infusion is that we exist to help uh, community banks and credit unions thrive by generating deposits and loans through our programs. And so it is really cool to see, uh, to be able to pay off a mission statement in the tangible way. Because it's one thing to say that, but to actually have 10 billion in deposits and loan balances that we can account for every single one of, uh, that is paying off your mission statement. And so um, a lot of work by a lot of people went into doing that. To answer your question, I mean, part of the mission statement is helping community financial institutions thrive. So for our clients to be able to sustain and grow their businesses, uh, they've got to have deposits and they've got to have loans. And there are times when they need a lot more of one than the other. Uh, Right now, a lot of folks need uh, deposits more than they need loans. That was not the case a year ago. Whatever the case uh, has been over the years, We've been there for our clients as a trusted partner to drive growth in those categories for our clients. The cool thing is this is not, you know, well, we got a couple of your giant campaigns here that are really making up most of it. These are thousands of small campaigns that add up. Um, you know, one of our analogies is uh, get a base hit every day rather, rather than trying to get a home run. This 10 billion is a, uh, thousands of base hits for hundreds of community financial institutions that have added up to $10 billion. So, uh, uh, you know, the lifeblood of, of any community financial institution is not investment banking. Uh, it's not exotic financial instruments. It's deposits and loans. And uh, so that's why it's exciting for us. It pays off our mission statement, but it's vital to our clients as well. Yeah, very well said. And so when you think about those base hits adding up, what are the, you know, what are the silver bullets that are being uh, used to, you know, to the, the magic formula to drive those results? Well, you know, if you think about the, the basic equation of how you get to 10 billion, there, there are two components. 
Uh, you have to have accounts that are opened and then you have to have balances in those accounts. And so that goes directly back to kind of our operating premise, which is that any successful targeting uh, methodology involves capacity and propensity. Does the target audience have the means to buy the product and the, do they have the inclination to buy the product? And so getting there is really effective use of those criteria because we had to use very strong propensity to buy data to get that a number of accounts you need to get to 10 billion. But if those accounts were funded um, in, a, in a very low balance, anemic way, they still wouldn't get you there. So you have to sell accounts to where we have the capacity to fund those accounts in a meaningful level. And so it really goes back to the heart of what makes Infusion unique, our data assets that allow us to target in on where we can help clients uh, direct their resources to uh, get the best impact. So uh, again, it's generating accounts, but accounts that are funded, and that drives back to data criteria that predicts likelihood of getting an account opened and likelihood of that account being funded in a, in a meaningful way. Yeah, so uh, it's a it's a great answer of, you know, a lot of times people think about a silver bullet or, a, you know, kind of this uh, wave the magic wand and it just happens. What you've described is, is the reality of the silver bullet or the magic wand is it's a very d- disciplined process grounded in uh, very practical analytics. Yeah, the word discipline we use probably more than anything else. And that goes back to the base hit versus home run strategy. Uh, everyone knows if you put a, like right now, if you put a high enough rate on a deposit, you will, you will generate balances. Uh, we don't do that. We, we use data to identify high propensity targets and use more modest pricing to get growth. Uh, that's more challenging, but it requires that discipline. Um, so when we say discipline, there are some subcomponents of that. There, one is starting with an empirical foundation that you can better plan off of. Two is building a plan that is achievable and that is fund, fundable in your budget environment and that um, is material in terms of the impact it has. And then you have to, ex- any plan that you don't execute on is not worth anything. So you have to be able to execute. And then that, that's a key part of the discipline. Um, a lot of clients struggle to execute. That's why we exist to be an extension of our clients' teams to help them make sure they're executing uh, consistently on schedule. And then you got to track the results of what you do, or else you don't have any idea whether you're a ten billion or one billion or five billion or five hundred million. Uh, so one one thing you could say is you know the fact that we know it's ten billion is a testament to our commitment to uh, tracking everything we do. Uh, but all of those things and tracking is just a sub-discipline of all of those, uh, pro- that process. Uh, analyze, plan, execute, track, revise, plan, uh, and then ultimately come back and analyze, you know, again, are we moving the needle? Are we achieving what we, what we plan to or thought we would achieve? Yeah, and so, you know, that's really key, right? Um, so we're not... I think the clients who that that uh, have been with us a long time or have, may have just started with us see the value in having a partner with that tracking history uh, to inform strategy. It kind of jumpstarts their test and learn. It gives them a rich, particularly community uh, financial that may not have the same scale as a as a big, but have a lot more heart. And we love working with you know community banks and credit unions with a lot of heart that are making a difference in the community. It gives them, but 
gives them access to scale uh, and insights and testing and learn. So, so let's talk a little bit about, obviously we're not going to get into the, the, the depth of a, you know, a 30 minute or one hour deep dive tracking review that we do with clients, you know, every quarter, but what are some of those key lessons learned? We've learned, we've learned with one or two things in, in tracking 10 billion of results across thousands of campaigns. What are some of those key lessons learned? Uh, we talked a little bit about audience selection, um, yeah. but, you know, talk, talk a little bit about the capacity and yeah, how that plays in there. Yeah, so one of the simplest uh, concepts that I think anyone could get their head around pretty easily is um, more targeted, more frequent is more effective than less targeted, less frequent. So when you when you use more, when you use less targeted forms of promotion, you just the fact is you're going to have more waste in your spend. Your your audience is going to include a larger number of people who don't have the means or an inclination to buy the product. So starting with that high frequency, um, highly targeted is, is the base. Then when it comes to capacity propensity, uh, you know, there, there are different flavors of capacity propensity. For example, propensity to buy includes institutional uh, metrics or institutional criteria as well as category criteria. So uh, institutional affinity, uh, I've demonstrated a commitment to your institution uh, a comfort level with you. Um, I'm committed to you as a financial partner. Um, there's various indicators of that that are predictive of response to virtually any type of offer. But then there's also category-specific um, CD buyers buy CDs, installment loan buyers buy installment loans. You, you have, uh, you know, capacity, I'm sorry, c category predictors of uh, propensity to buy and then, you know, on the capacity side, on their various indicators of uh, that really correlate with life stage where, you know, um, am I in that stage of my financial life where I'm primarily concerned with managing the value of my personal assets, or I'm in my core active borrowing years, uh, or am I just a pure transactor? And making these distinctions allows us to uh, be able to put relevant messages where that person has a financial capacity to benefit from uh, the offer they're being presented. So there's a lot more detail in, in you know, in there and by product category and, 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 and so forth. But uh, that's the basic concept. Yeah. And, and just to emphasize, like you said, uh, it's informed by not just theoretical, you know, sort of demographic indicators, but real tangible uh, actions and reactions across thousands of campaigns uh, at, at specific types of campaigns. Um, yeah, and it's been real, really interesting to see uh, how consistently certain criteria predicts outcomes, whether you're a one-branch credit union or a 500-branch bank. Um, very, very, very different types of organizations. If you look at response by certain criteria, you see the exact same linear pa uh, patterns. And so you can see that from institution to institution, but you also see that hold up over time. You know, you go back 15 years and you see the same sort of response correlations to, let's say, uh, CD offers as you're seeing right now with rates, rates going up, um, you know, in a, in a very different economic environment, a different generation is responding. But the criteria is still consistent. And so uh, it's, it's remarkable 
uh, and that's really what allows us to um, to do performance based marketing. And I, and I meant to mention that at the beginning. One of the other things to say about the ten billion dollars is virtually all of that has been generated on a pay for performance model, where uh, Infusion invested the resources to go out and get those balances, and clients only paid for what came to the door. And uh, you know, I think that adds another layer of credibility to uh, to this whole milestone. Yeah, we, and we get feedback all the time with clients saying we love the pay performance because it really makes sure that we're partners. Like we're, we're vested in the right. same outcomes. Um, right. We're not vested in doing activity that are ultimately unproductive. Um, right. So we talked about audience selection. That's the foundation. What about mm-hmm. some offer structure, just examples of lessons learned? Yeah, so I mean, you start with a really basic marketing premise that applies in almost any industry, which is the more tangible value that you communicate the more likely you are to get a direct result from a particular offer or message you're putting in front of a customer. And so that's really what we try to focus on is what's the financial value of what you're offering and how do we communicate that in a way that is as tangible as possible to the individual. Uh, So when you're talking about loans, uh, you're talking about certainly rate um, because that's essentially what is the cost of the product as I compare to what alternatives I have, but you're also at the same time wrapping around that uh, really important positioning that, hey, we know you're unique. We know you have uh, a variety of different parameters in which you bank. We have a variety of ways of addressing your particular lending need at this point in time. Come on and sit down with one of our specialists that we'll figure out just how to address your needs. So even in that positioning, it's not a rate per se, but you're saying you're, you're communicating that there's a consultative process there that is uh, friendly, welcoming, and so forth, takes into account your, your your uniqueness. You know, the deposit side, obviously, right now, rates are, are going crazy with all the rate increases we've had. And so there you want to be able to, again, offer something tangible that a client can determine, customer can determine here, this is the financial value to me. Um, but when you want it to be relationship-based growth versus a commodity-type product sale, um, checking's the interesting component because checking's a commodity. Um, everyone has on a checking account and every institution has offers checking. So how do you differentiate? And I think there it depends on these propensity to buy factors and where do I need to create propensity where it doesn't exist? And I need to get a little bit more aggressive in terms of what I'm willing to offer. So I want to move their direct deposit over to, to my institution. Um, I think one of the things we've seen the last few years is clearly communicating that your checking product is free, uh, whether that's contingent or just purely free. Uh, the, the lack of fees is really a key part of the message. So again, th- all of those are tangible economic value. Uh, when it comes to lending, you don't have to have the best loan rate in the market, uh, but you do have to communicate what you have to offer so that your customers know they're going to get a good deal. And even if, by the way, you're promoting a home equity and they don't have enough lendable equity, that rate still conveys the fact that you have good rates. And uh, they even end up doing a more refinance or uh, an installment loan, I'm going to get a good deal. Yeah, and just to emphasize something you said, uh, like checking, that's where the intersection of the of the capacity of propensity factors and the offer discipline is a, is a great. So, um, you know, for certain segments, 
the way they qualify, you know, they're, they're more attracted yeah. to some of those fe- those premium features. And so they, they know right. they have the balances to not have to worry about a monthly fee. And so you're, it's, you're, right. we lean into some of those differentiating premium features, but for some of the, the lower, the, you know, kind of pure transactors, uh, what we've actually found after, you know, ton, tons of test and learn is they're, they're much more fee sensitive than feature sensitive. And so they, they right. tend to gravitate to the, you know, no frills, no monthly fees, no minimums. And so that, that's where just thinking about where the bank's uh, value proposition and emphasis is related to those capacity propensity factors. Uh, you know, we've got, we bring to bear a lot of lessons learned that are relevant to, you know, wherever somebody sits in their strategic emphasis. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, one of our key um, unique assets is our campaign tracking database. Yeah. Uh, thousands of campaigns is updated every day with fresh data from campaigns that are uh, being completed on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis. And this allows us to say, historically, this is the offer that best aligns with this segment for these types of products. Um, you know, one of the real tangible economic value we're bringing to clients right now is helping them set their their CD rate pricing when they're not overpaid by 25 or 50 or even 75 basis points uh, because it, they're, they're matching the rate of someone down the street. You know, that's the way deposit rates get set up. Fortunately, in most markets is what are they paying down the street? I need to be somewhere around that. Rather than saying, what are, what are my audiences of high propensity buyers and what are those segments responding to in terms of price point and how can I set my my pricing based on a data analysis that I can be confident in? Two, two really different ways of going about it that has a substantial tangible impact on your current net interest margins, but also your ability to retain that funding downstream um, as rates, you know, change and, you know, rates end up going down within the next year. It's going to create some really unique challenges with a lot of the CDs maturing uh, in the second half of 23 and then at 24. And then, and so we, we touched on this a little bit. So there's a, there's a, all these pieces fit together, but you have the offer or, you know, what's the, what's the value, value proposition you're offering? And then how's that position? So some, maybe touch on some of the best yeah. practices we've learned on creative yeah. and positioning the message. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, again, part of our, um, effective marketing, regardless of channel, is um, concision, you know, concise message, a lot of white space where it's very clear to the audience what uh, what the proposition is. Um, and that's regardless of, of what type of product you're, you're promoting. One of the really interesting things about the 10 billion in the history of that 10 billion um, is uh, uh, in our 15 year existence, the first 10 years or so, we're almost exclusively direct mail and email uh, channels um, because digital was still in its infancy and particularly the ability to use targeted digital uh, to, you know, selected audiences. Um, the 10 billion, I believe, Dan, and you can correct me on this, I, I believe, I know in 2021, we did over 2 billion, might have been as much as 3 billion in 2022. So. Roughly half of that 10 billion has just been in the last couple of years. I mean, confident yeah. in saying that. Yeah. And uh, there are reasons for that. Our, our business has grown dramatically as we've worked with more and more clients across the country. 
but also uh, we've been able to vastly expand our channel mix. And one thing that we've seen is uh, the more ways I can show the message to the audience, the more likely I am to get a response. Uh, so omni-channel is a buzzword, but it is real in terms of its impact. And again, it's one thing for me to say that if I was charging clients based on just pure production, I might even have an incentive to say that because the more channels that I'm charging for, the more I can charge. Being a performance-based, when I pay to execute through a channel that doesn't produce results, it costs me money and I don't get to bill a client. We don't like that. And so we work continually to optimize that mix. And um, and we, we really find combination of digital with selective use of direct mail um, really works. The digital creates engagement that we can measure or learn from. Uh, so that's, a, that's I think, the big, been the biggest thing uh, in terms of learnings about how you put the message out there is being able to bring that omni-channel component. Uh, and again, that requires resources to be able to execute at the same time within one campaign or, you know, four or five different channels. Uh, we do that every day and we help clients be able to do that and then measure all of those and bring it back into an analysis where you can determine, you know, what I learned. Um, and so I think the consistent look and feel, someone walks out to the mailbox, there's a postcard with a home equities uh, special on it that's right in front of them. They see that. They go in later that evening, they log into Facebook. There's the same branded message in their Facebook feed. It recurs through their feed throughout the campaign as a reminder uh, that, that the offer is there. They get an email a few days later with the same branded message. They don't click the email within a week. They get a retargeted email. And then um, they may see the same message um, on uh, the streaming TV services that I have supported uh, through OTT. And so it's a combination of those things that that not only gives you general branding, but uh, gives you very specific, you know, reinforcement of a, of a financial uh, value proposition and all of that we can measure and bring back into, you know, what did that all yield at the end of the day? So, you know, that's been the really the biggest thing the last few years is really digging into the channel mix, uh, learning how different channels interact with each other, how they perform for different types of product offers, how to optimize those uh, against a client budget uh, to generate the results that clients, uh, you know, need to need to get out of these campaigns. Yeah, and I think I think just to your, to your point about channels, you know, classically in um, you know the old direct mail world, you talked about the three legged stool of of list oh. offer creative. Well, now we really added the fo- that fourth stool, which is channels, uh, because it's like like you said, I mean, direct mail's a, a, a small fraction of the total impressions delivered in campaigns, and this the power of this first party targeted. Uh, some people call it addressable on the channel, but it's the yeah. idea of, this is really that, that classic idea of putting a very relevant message in front of a audience that, that, that cares about that message at the right time, at the right frequency, and then being able to measure that impact. So talk, talk a little bit more about yeah. just, you know, the kind of the measurement. Well, you know, I think that, you know, the, the future of the cookie is obviously highly in question. Um, but if you think about a cookie, um, the cookie, and you, and you go back to our fundamental capacity propensity equation, okay, the cookie is an indicator of propensity because someone has been on a website where it appears like they're potentially looking for a product that might relate to what you can offer. 
So there's value there. There's propensity to buy indicators there, but it gives you really no sense of the capacity of that person to actually buy the product. Um, and so the first of all, it's, it's limited. And of course, targeting based on cookies, you're downstream. You don't know if the product's already been purchased, um, which is actually an annoyance if I start getting ads on something that I've already done. Uh, I've searched for hotels before and I start getting these messages about a hotel or that location. It's like, uh, I've already been there, actually. Um, <laughs> I don't need to go back. So you, you have these limitations. Um, with first-party data, you lean on the capacity, propensity, the historical performance of these segments of these audiences for different types of offers. And so you create that file based on that historical proven performance. And then you take that file and then you match that file uh, to social media uh, channels, to uh, streaming TV, to um, IP address databases and so forth. And then you're going to get, uh, you know, your match rates are right now are, are continuing to approve maybe 80%. But there you've got an audience that you've selected based on proven data. And then that's who you're targeting versus following someone uh, around on, in an online, you know, type of uh, environment. And that, and that makes, that can make all the difference in the world in terms of the results you're able to get out of your campaigns. For The other factor is because I selected that file and I copied all kinds of attributes onto that file, pre-campaign attributes, I can take an updated data file at the end of the campaign and match it to that campaign file and actually track accounts opened by those folks in the categories promoted and other categories and um, I can look at how those correlate, uh, buying behavior correlates with changes in overall deposit, loan balances, and other types of payroll effects. And that's really, that's how A, you know whether you're getting to 10 billion or not. And, uh, and B, that's how you can really correlate the engagement metric that someone see this, and click on it, to whether or not they actually open the account. And if you think about it, and a lot of you watching this, have probably either just been through or in the middle of or going to be upgrading your online account opening. The difference between a four to one and a two to one ratio between clicks and accounts opened can make all the difference in the world in terms of uh, marketing efficiency and return on investment. But if you're not tracking that, you don't even have any idea, you have no idea where you are on the spectrum and how your conversion rate compares to what others have. It's more difficult to build a business case to invest in the technology to have a really efficient online account opening if you don't know what the potential lift is. And so those are all things that we're looking at every day to say, how do I go from getting someone interested to actually getting that account on the books? To do that, you have to be able to track the accounts that are actually open and then correlate that back to the clicks. Uh, that I think digital has almost made it easier for uh, banks and credit unions to not do the account open tracking because they've got the click tracking and they can say, well, if I can't get to that, at least I have the click tracking and crack tracking gets redefined as basic engagement metrics, but you don't know how much of that actually led to open accounts. And so um, it's really critical to close that loop completely and not leave half the loop open uh, in terms of correlating the engagement you create with the actual products that get purchased. Yeah, and, and, and even in banks we've worked with that are purely online opening, I think one key thing about our approach is because it's an omnichannel media approach and an omnichannel response approach, one of the things we found is the click path can get broken, right? Um, and so just one practical yeah. example, 
is, you know, somebody may open their email and do some tire kicking on their mobile phone, but then, you know, on their lunch break at, at work, and maybe it's on, maybe it's at home, but it's on the office VPN. So it's showing up as a totally different geography, totally different network. Uh, then they go to the bank's website off without, without any kind of click, go to that website, buy the product. Um, those two events may not be, may not be, uh, connected if you purely are relying on click path tracking, but in right. the, 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 the methodology that we're talking about, where it's, where it's, uh, grounded in first party, uh, a specific addressable targeting, it's very robust in understanding the interactions of, of the, the omnichannel media mix and how that plays into response, uh, where, you know, even, even in a pure digital sales channel, there are, there are, uh, you know, interruptions that can happen, ad blockers, uh, all those things. And so that's where the, the, really the, the power of the robust methodology that we're talking about, uh, really comes into play and, and provides a lot of, uh, weight to stand on and a lot of rigor, uh, when we talk about both measuring the $10 billion, but also, uh, informing clients and working with them to provide them a, a lot of smarts on 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 really separating that signal from the noise. Yes. Yep. So, um, so Tim, any other final thoughts as we talk about you know kind of celebrating this milestone and really leaning into why it's significant for clients? Yeah, you know. Again, um, the bread and butter, uh, the, the vast majority of income derived by our clients is deposit and loan balances and the ability to balance those out in a profitable way. And that, that's what we do is to help them, help them grow in that category, but not just putting dollars on the books, doing it in a way that's sustainable over the long term because it's rooted in relationships. So I would say, you know, it's great to look back and see, you know, 10 billion. The more exciting things really to look forward uh, because at the current trajectory, we could hit 20 billion within a couple of more years. And if we do that, the impact for our clients is going to be substantial in terms of their ability to sustain their, the base of customers they have, uh, to grow their profitability, to deliver more value to, to customers. Um, you know, there's a, been a lot of, I got speculation about the future of community banking um, and community financial institutions with uh, fintech and uh, the concentration of large banks in terms of certain types of accounts. Um, but uh, the results that we're generating show that community financial institutions play a vital role in supporting their communities. They're, they're thriving. Uh, they actually, a lot of what they're able to do our programs are things that the large banks struggle to do because of how they're, they're so unwieldy and, uh, and bureaucratic silos. And so, yeah, yeah silos. And, um, and then the fintechs are finding out it's a lot harder to be a bank than they thought it was. Um, and to know your customer and, and everything else that goes along with to, to being a bank. And so, um, we're just going to keep our head down, keep driving every day more results for clients. And I can't wait to see, uh, uh, you know, the next 5 billion, the next 10 billion hit 
hit the books uh, because that means uh, certainly infusion thriving, but um, but our clients are thriving and we're living up to our mission statement, which is again to help community financial institutions thrive by generating deposits and loans. Yeah, very 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 well said. And it is so cool to do those quarterly tracking reviews or those annual, um, you know, comprehensive re- reviews that we do with clients to see the progress and to have those those, you know, have that have that impact to say, okay, you know, here's here's the things that we think are working well or things that we need to tweak and have that dialogue and you know, clients love, uh, you know, that that kind of partnership and helping, you know, get them them to get to where they're they're trying to go. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not, it's a next level of support and extension of the team that, uh, and so we'd love to, uh, to keep doing that for clients. And, and it's certainly an honor when others, uh, reach out and want to tap into that expertise as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, let us know what you think of this, uh, the show and the insights and look forward to talking later. Absolutely. Thanks, Sam. All right. That's it for today on Top Quartile. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Top Quartile wherever you find podcasts on any podcast app. And while you're at it, we'd really appreciate a five-star rating. And if you're interested in getting an opportunity assessment, head over to infusionmarketinggroup.com to learn more. Thanks for listening.